Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Cindy Morales Garcia, co founder of the Courageous Change Collective. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Malax Band of Jubilee Indians and associate of Dendro's group. And we have a special guest joining us this week, and I'll have her introduce herself. I'm Mary Villiard, visual artist based in Duluth. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Um, so we have Mary joining us uh, after a trip that she and Anthony were able to take uh, to the Middle East, put together by um, an organization in Duluth. Um, and you guys were able to visit Israel and Palestine. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a background on, on how that all came together and how you guys got connected with that. Sure. Miri, I think I'll take this one because I've been uh, organizing with the, with the organization. So there's an organization called Peace Not Walls, um, and it's based out of Duluth, Minnesota. And it's in the, the goal is to, um, to, to elevate the dual narratives coming out of Israel and Palestine. Um, one of the things that many folks... Um, you know, may or may not know. I, you know, I don't know where where folks are, but the history of of um, the state of Israel is one um, that is that is born out of out of extreme conflict. There are folks who have been in the area, both Palestinian, um, well, we now call, refer to them as Palestinians, but there have been people in that area who were Christian, Muslim, Jewish for 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 many years. And after World War II, um, there was the a, a war that established what is now the state of Israel, and of course that comes with conflict um, because, of course. Colonialism had broken up this area called the Levant across lines that aren't didn't exist before that. So it crossed cultures, crossed peoples. And so in in doing so, it, it creates this space where now this state of Israel is established in the, in the heart of spaces where there were already people. And so there is now, you know, of course, these conflicts that are happening. And if there has been subsequent wars and conflicts, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. But in doing so, one of the narratives that gets lost often is the experience and plight of Palestinians. Now, it's important to note that when we talk about peace, not walls, we're talking about political conflict, not religious ones. This is reiterated both by Israelis on the ground trying to work and do peace work and Palestinians who are trying to work on the ground to do peace work, that oftentimes this gets pulled into this religious conflict space, and that is not seen as helpful by anybody on the ground who's actually trying to do peace work. So so, so, so this is a political conflict that we're talking about, and Peace Not Walls is trying to, to elevate a narrative because in the United States, we often receive... Um, one-sided narratives, mostly from those on the right uh, in in Israel political spaces, and so that's that. Peace Not Walls wanted to to work with another organization called Churches for Middle East Peace, which is on the ground in um, Israel and Palestine, trying to again elevate these narratives and create pathways for folks to witness what's happening, especially with Palestinians who are in occupied territories. And so or those two organizations came together and wanted to devise a trip that simultaneously had allowed for some of the Christians in the area to in, in, that are involved to have our pilgrimage to the Holy Land, as well as a dual narrative of Israeli and Palestinian experiences for folks who are actually on the ground doing work. That's another narrative you don't get. There are lots of people on the ground who are actually trying to address the atrocities that are happening. And then... Um, to also be able to take back a narrative that counters one uh, that often you find in the United States that allies itself with the religious um, uh, uh, framing of Israel as a state rather than the reality of what's on the ground, oftentimes which ignores Palestinian Christians, of which there are many in the entire area. You have this, 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 this narrative which um, some folks, I know the Israeli folks on the trip, Mary will co-sign with this, didn't like it when when we used the frame apartheid because what we were seeing was a dual space where there was definitely second class citizenship. I, I'm going to be unapologetic with that. I understand that this may pro prohibit my ability to easily go back to Jerusalem because of the conditions there. Just saying this out loud, but this is what we what we what I observed, and so the whole goal was to send us with a much more complex, not complicated. We'll talk a little bit about why we don't use that word anymore too. Um, and so that's what organized it together. And so in doing so, they also wanted to have a diversity of perspectives. And so 
Um, in addition to the kind of mostly Lutheran group of folks who were part of Churches for Middle, uh, Peace, Not Walls, they also invited me as black black clergy. So there was a perspective of, of clergy perspective of color. They also invited artists. And so Miri was one of the artists, one of the two artists that were invited as well, as well as an educator, um, Patrick Duffy, who's the um, director of teaching and learning in St. Louis Park Schools and author of the book, um, anti-racist school leadership. And so so there was this, and who's Arab-American himself. I'll talk about what it was like leaving the airport later. So all of these things kind of came together for this trip that ended up being very deep. And I'll stop there and let Miri kind of jump in. I mean, I think you did a great introduction of the entire experience. I think for me, um, it was kind of interesting going as someone with not specifically a Christian background, um, and I thought it was really great that the the folks who were from the Lutheran community were um, inviting myself and Carla Hamilton, who was the other artist who went. And I think for both of us, just, um, well, specifically for me, coming from an Indigenous perspective, it was really interesting to see this place and um, make some connections around sort of what the the early the early phases of colonization looked like sort of real time in a space. Um, so that was a, a huge takeaway for me. I, I think it's important to to do some historical perspective pieces here, just to kind of ground our conversation. So in in um, in the early 1900s, there um, the area called the Levant, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, had had been been defeated by the British, um, and there in this area had been kind of broken up. And there was dual conversations happening between some of the British folks who, who were involved in there and both who we now refer to as Palestinians who were already in the area, had been there for, for hundreds of years. And um, and uh, Jewish folks or what, what folks will refer to as Zionist. And that's a little bit more nuanced because many of the self-prescribed uh, Zionists in the current political conflict would be kind of unrecognizable to some of the founders of this idea. But this idea of establishing a, a, a Jewish state or a homeland, and there were conversations that included both, you know, this area, but also areas in Argentina, areas in Uganda. Like there were there was multiple conversations happening. And so promises were made all around. And eventually um the 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 kind of conflict that was ensuing, and keep in mind, at this point, this area was open to all of the folks of all of these different faith traditions to freely access the land and kind of co- and, and, and cohabitate together. But this narrative begins to come out that says it's kind of an unoccupied territory. Sound familiar? <laughs> um, there was a conversation we had with one of the foreign Palestinian foreign foreign ministers um, who, and she when she was talking, she's dope by the way. But when she was talking, she she actually spent six months studying treaties. Um, between you know failed treaties in the United States between Native Americans because of how similar the experience was of Palestinians there, and so she actually went to that for for to pull um, you know some of her learning and growth for trying to address this issue. This is going to be more complicated. You have to go and look at. There's many documentaries and things out there, but what but but what what begins to grow up is is a movement called the Zionist movement, which which tries which is seeking to establish a Jewish state. By 1948, the conversations and promises by the British leave borders that are drawn that leaves an area of the space that's now uh, considered Israel and a swath for a group uh, a space that would be considered Palestine. Um, this is after the 1948, when when after World War II, um, you have an influx of European Jews who are called Ashkenazi, who who are coming and migrating to the area more and more. Um, and this kind of idea of 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 the state of Israel comes in here. Now again, I'm outside of it, so so actually talk to folks who are who are in it to to get all the deep nuance. This is the super simplistic generalized version of it, right? But after the war in 1948, when there's a military conquest of the area and establishment of this of this state, there are borders that are drawn and negotiated, which allows for a Palestinian state and a and an Israeli state. And in um a subsequent war that followed after after that, where where other folks get involved, the Palestinian Liberation Organization is formed, Yasser Arafat and all of that. Um, tries to to kind of come back and take land back um they are defeated um kind of pretty handily by the israelis who who 
militarily and and social geopolitically had established themselves. And so then a negotiation is made for an area called Palestine on a map and a Israeli state and that Palestinian area would be given back to the Palestinians in three phases called zones A, B, and C. And so by, you know, after all these negotiations and then, of course, the Oslo Peace Agreement in the, in the 1990s to try to cease hostility, hostilities the, between the groups, it was negotiated that, that the peace agreement would allow for these areas to go back to the Palestinians in these three phases by 2000. Well, here we are in 2020, and that's not the case. You have zones that are that are you know uh, is, uh, zone C is controlled and, and and governed policed by the Israelis. Zone B is kind of a mix, and zone A is is supposed to be under pure Palestinian control. But this state has not been established, and there's a lot of checkpoints and treatment back and forth. In fact, while we were there touring one of the refugee camps, you know, five people were killed. Um, because there's a huge imbalance of, of of death at this kind of police state control. Now, throughout this time, there had been bombings um, um, by uh, Palestinians of Israel territories. There had been unwanted killing by Israeli um, uh, soldiers of Palestinians, kind of for any reason, you know, to hear some of the perspectives out of Palestine. So there's a history that you can go and Google and, and look at. But, you know, these are all brown folks, <laughs> Um you know that 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 are engaged, and, and and there is also a sense that because of that, there's a lot less interest in helping to actually resolve, and so there's a whole lot of different narratives that begin to pop out, and then there's actually going there and seeing it, um, and we have many pictures of 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 the Palestinian areas controlled by Israeli military, um, and things like that. So there's a there's a long history that builds into this conflict that we now are encountering with the trip in this dual narrative. So that's that's some a very poor historical overview. So, um, Mary, what what made you want to go on this trip as an artist? Yeah, I, oh, geez. So I think initially I, I, I was going to turn it down um, just because I felt like I didn't have the, the knowledge or you know, I'm just I'm not terribly well traveled internationally. And additionally, I'd been a couple other places internationally for like the first time um, leading up to this trip. Um, but then I'd reach out to Carla Hamilton, who's like my travel buddy and art partner and activism. And uh, I just asked her, like, would you want to go on a trip to Israel and Palestine? And she was um, I won't swear, but she was like, yes, you know, <laughs> but, uh, very <laughs> eager to do it. And, you know, her story um just to put that in here, she talked about how her, a, a relative of hers or a grandmother or somebody had told her, you know, growing up when she was watching TV, you know, she'd said she'd wanted to go to Israel and Palestine. And her grandma was like, no, you're not going to go there. Like, that's not, you know, a place that you'll ever end up. Um, and so this whole trip, she's been really excited to sort of change that narrative for herself. Um, and for me, I think I... But I tend to, I don't know, I like to go to places where I, I guess I don't have that understanding um, or like the the basis of a lot of my artwork is kind of walking into things with just sort of like this base level understanding of, of what I'm, I'm trying to explore um, and using my art or using the experience of being just present to learn more because I feel like in a lot of instances like the United States representation of, of the conflict um, is probably not accurate. And then in going there, you find out like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't surprising to, to figure out that it's, um, it's very different than how it's, it's portrayed here. And so for me, it was just like that, that educational component. Um, and you know, the best way to learn is to just go and be present. And then also as a person, like I've mentioned from like this, you know, not necessarily Christian background. I felt very privileged to be able to have like my first encounters with Christianity, like in the actual places, you know, or like my first encounters educationally, <laughs> you know, um, being all these places that Jesus had walked. So, um, yeah, I felt very privileged in that. So this, this conflict has, has, uh, there have been different times in the classroom where I have made kind of uh, connections between the struggle of indigenous individuals and from what I could see as an outsider happening between uh, Israel and Palestine. So um, 
and also an individual who has always um, seen the conflict ever since Israel became a state in 1948 and how and has always questioned the narrative that we are we are given here in the states only because of who I am as an indigenous black individual in this country I question every narrative that I hear coming from a predominantly white European American culture, whether it's in the United States or throughout the world. I always question that. And the first thing that I, I would always question is, is when, is when Israel was becoming a state, it was portrayed as individuals who were leading this conflict. And there were names that I, I don't remember right offhand that were leading the conflict for Israel, but they were portrayed as as patriots, as individuals who were fighting for the freedom, while we then started being bombarded with uh, the negative um, labels that were being applied to Palestinians who were fighting for the homeland, who were who who were much like us, fighting a losing battle against colonial uh, colonialism and the taking of their land. But that, but the um, the conflicts were being portrayed differently, even to this day. Um, you know, we hear we like you said, Anthony. We hear one side of that story that's portrayed in coverage that we get here as Americans. Um, however, my question is, since you were, since you guys went there to um, learn of this other narrative, how is that going to be shared with the rest of us? Where does that learning expand beyond your guys' individual experiences going over there? And how is that going to translate to the rest of us increasing our awareness of that? I'm just wondering what was the thought behind that? So... Just to be clear, I know there's at least three parameters and perspectives that are important. And Amir, you can you can add to there, but um, there's the personal, right? So there's the personal. What are you saying and to doing in your own circles to 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 bring that forward? For me, as a cler as clergy, I have to contend with the um, religious um, space. And so, how am I taking this to my church community, my my Christian experiences to combat and and, and add nuance to to a narrative? And then there's the public one, things like here, right? So, my professional life, how is how is this now making its way into my everyday work? So, there's three areas for me that I already see a charge to, um, given to me both by the host families and, and both Israeli and Palestinian. So I think one of the things that we need to talk about is is how the narrative that we get in the United States not only dismisses Palestinian voices and perspectives, but also Israeli perspectives who who differ great wildly wildly and greatly from the small minority that's actually controlling the political conversation there. So there's a whole there's a whole you know depth of nuance to that. But I I have three I walked away with three charges. Mary, I don't know for you what what charge you felt coming out of that. Yeah, I think uh, similar to you, you know, the first and last one, I think the middle part for me um, was just as an artist um, and also as a person, you know, of indigenous heritage. So my background, my dad's a Fond du Lac enrollee and then my mom's enrolled in the Moravian Band of the Thames in Canada. Um, and I think for me, like going over there, uh, there was a part of me that just was curious, like if there was a way, you know, Prior to going there, I felt like I was already kind of on like that pro-Palestinian side and, and um, kind of like what you said, Don, about, uh, you know, questioning the narratives that we have here. Uh, one of our speakers actually over there had talked about how it's not, um, it doesn't really accomplish much to be anti things. Um, and he encouraged us to, to walk away with sort of like a pro um, perspective rather than like being anti-Israel, be pro-Palestinian or, you know, be pro um, just justice. <laughs> um, and so for me, there was a lot of parallels over there. And as Anthony said, it, you know, it, 
there's kind of like conditions in place where if you talk about these things, it's, there's a likelihood that you can't go back. Um, and so I've been trying to navigate like how to talk about this publicly and how to talk about this like publicly in my work without um, necessarily putting myself either in, 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 I don't know, in danger in some capacity or, um, yeah, I think for me, the, the biggest parallel between like the indigenous experience and just the, the Palestinian experience was, um, I saw a lot of reflections of sort of manifest destiny in the, the ideas of Zionism, where it was kind of like, you know, God has told us that this is our, our land. And so like, regardless of whoever exists here already, um, this is ours. <laughs> and so, um, uh, it was very uncomfortable, um, being in that space. And like I said, sort of feeling like I was getting like this firsthand glimpse into colonization of, of a place. And then also looking at, you know, it, it was very hard to see the, the returning Jewish people's like connection to the land while I was there. And that, that's not to say that there isn't like historically one that's there, but seeing who has been like taking care of the land, who's been farming, who's been like, you know, who, who has that actual indigenous connection to, to nature in that space um, and seeing, you know, going to the Dead Sea and seeing that it's like a third of the size it was 50 years ago because of the environmental degradation of like is Israel, you know, as a place and seeing like the poisoning of Palestinian water and um, just all of these things that were, were so destructive of the land in order to create this place of Israel, which like Israel itself, like we were in Jerusalem, I felt like it was a utopia, you know, and that, that was the first place that we'd started. Um, that was the first place where we were spending time. And I, in my head, there was just like an anxiousness because I was like, there, th this amount of wealth and, um, I don't know, just the utopia that it was. It, usually those spaces don't exist without somebody, you know, experiencing the, the polar opposite of that. And so, of course, when we got to the Palestinian portions of the, the trip, it, it was very clear, you know, the, the resource extraction, you know, the fact that Palestinian people are paying taxes and um, don't have a say, whether it's through voting or, um, you know, just simple municipality things like, you know, I don't know, garbage collection um, and, and fresh water again. Like it was just it, it became very hard for me to understand the Jewish narrative as indigenous people. Um, so I'll give the example too. I, I was thinking about of how like we have water protectors here, right? And the, the water protectors are protecting the water for everybody, not just indigenous people. Like if we got our land back, you know, if we got our, our own indigenous state in, in America, um, it wouldn't be a, a thing where we're intentionally like trying to destroy the non-indigenous people who are um, outside of our territory. Like our, our connection to the land is there where I, I would, you know, I feel like <laughs> we wouldn't be destroying the place that we exist on, even if borders do exist. And so it was very hard for me to make the connection um, just seeing the treatment of the land and the understanding of the land and like the, the level of okay people were with just letting things like the Dead Sea sort of like just disappear, you know? Um, and so, and I had a lot of conversations, I think, with some of the, the Palestinian folks that we met with just asking like, you know, what is your connection to the land? And um, yeah, that was a, a thought that came through later on in the trip as I was piecing together what my thoughts were on, you know, what I could say in response to the, the majority white folks who were like um, telling me that I need to support Israel because of it's, uh, you know, allegedly the same mission of native people here and just seeing those differences. Wow. Tell me more. I mean, <laughs> I haven't said much in part because I just feel like um, I just want to take in. You all have been on this pilgrimage of bearing witness. Um, and have been, so I'm like, I want to know what you witnessed. You know, I appreciate the invitation to think about how do we um, disrupt the dominant narrative? How do we expand beyond a single story, right? Because sometimes that, those are not the same things. 
Um, and I appreciate how you all are then thinking about, you know, how do we weave these perspectives of these narratives into a more holistic global tapestry in which we understand our world and our context, because we have a, a fuller understanding of this larger global narrative that we're all a part of. And so um, I got a couple of questions. I'm going to throw it out there. I know, you know, I'm sure the journalists are are just like, you should really only ask one at a time. But here's what's, well, here's what's floating up. And, and I'd love to hear whatever you all have to say. But just in general, I'd love to keep hearing, you know, yeah, what stood out to you? What did you witness that you are holding in your minds and hearts and that you will continue to think about how to integrate, you know, what, what were the narratives that you that you're like, wow, I, I didn't, that surprised me or that deepened an understanding or just this is this is what we held. This is what we're holding and let this be a space that you get to make some meaning of it together. Um, I'm also wondering, uh, Anthony, you said there is a difference between complex and complicated and you're inviting us to lean into complex and maybe set aside the notion of complicated. I'd love to know what you meant by that. <laughs> What, 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 you know, what led you to that? What does that mean? And then my third thing out there is, as I, I so appreciate this space, because I think this is part, you know, this particular journey, this pilgrimage that you all undertook together, um, is part of a larger project that we are holding together on counter stories that we hold in our communities, which is really to build those muscles of complexity to really understand there's never one single story, even when it's our own, even in our own communities, I need to expand beyond a single story because I can't say all of my people think X, Y, or Z, where there's too much present even within just, you know, one thing. Um, and I and I just wonder if you all witnessed anything on how how are these communities that you all were a part of, how are they holding the complexity of their own stories? You know, what what practices, what muscles, what spiritual groundings are our folks practicing that you got to see that really helped cultivate those skills, those muscles of complexity or held people grounded as they had to lean into that complexity? Because it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and, I, and I think that's what's going to lead us to figure out. So what do we do? What do we build? What states and structures and systems uh, can we uh, endeavor to cultivate together that will actually build the world that we're we're looking for because it's not a simple thing, right? So those are the things that are coming into my mind. I'm just gonna put it all out there now, and y'all can run and take whatever you whatever you want. But tell me more. Tell me more. This has has been such a gift. So many things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, and maybe Anthony, you can jump off of this, but I think um, something that stood out heavily was. Uh, you know, this connection to like the, the military and, um, you know, you walk around a lot of parts of, of Israel and there's soldiers and everybody's required to serve in the military, both like men and women. Um, and they're all like 18, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And so you see these like teenagers walking around with machine guns and there's like, you know, thousands of them, you know, on every street corner. And it was very interesting to hear when we went to, uh, one of the Jewish host families and, to hear them talk about how like that was a positive thing to some extent for them because it 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 was what made them feel safe and to, for a lot of Jewish people it seemed like that was the only way they could feel safe was having this huge like military presence um but then i think also a lot of them admitted that like you wouldn't want to be an arab person <laughs> existing in this place um because that military has a completely different um meaning for you i mean we went to um there was some uh, maybe Anthony, you remember this, but, uh, in town, there was like, um, a group of Muslim people, like, you know, going to pray and they, they're intimidated by like a soldier outpost. It's like, there's multiple quarters of, um, Jerusalem and, you know, people of all faiths using that, that area. But the Muslim people are the only ones who have literally people with machine guns who watch them as they enter, um, to do their worship. And so just seeing like how, um, thinking too about like the, how, how that's almost a parallel to here in some instances where, you know, for white individuals, you know, the police, that, that is the security. That's what they feel like they need in order to be protected. But for communities of color, it's like quite the opposite. And so, and also seeing like, why, why was that military set up? Well, it's again, against Arab people and that like all the training and everything is revolved around um, that 
enemy, basically. And you look at our police here in the U.S. and it's a similar history. Um, and so, yeah, that that piece really stood out to me. Um, just the guns everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I think there was an instance, too, in Jerusalem where um, our guide had sort of pointed out how um, there was, you know, a Palestinian kid playing or, or something like that. And he got escorted away by, um, you know, the soldiers. And um, meanwhile, we're walking by all of these, like, you know, Jewish children and they can just play freely in the streets without, you know, having a concern um, that they're going to be removed. So safety and notions of safety and police. <laughs> and, and again, the, to your point around the complicated versus complex, right? Um, what, I, what I meant by that was something that came actually both from Palestinian host families and our Israeli host families. I'm using the term Israeli because, again, we often move this into a religious conflict space. And while religion crosses a lot of these things, what we're actually talking about is a political one, right? And so uh, I, no one, I didn't get a sense from anybody the entire time that anybody um, doesn't have the right to practice their religious freedom space. Like that, uh, one of the odd, perverse kind of areas of of coming together across the all is that everybody stands in defense of everybody's religious right, not just to Holy Land, although again, complex, <laughs> right? But also, but what's not complicated is what's on the table. They were supposed to be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state. I think it's important to talk about in this conflict that in the first intifada that that was put forward, this was largely kind of demonstrations. This is largely kind of, you know, uh, civil, civil unrest kind of things. It devolves in the influx of state power, mostly from outside actors, um, into things that that come forward as bombings and things like that. So if you can imagine, and I'm just going to put this put this 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 thing in there, right? So with the Israeli host family, one of the things that that one of the members of that family who does uh, peace work does an NGO um, centered around helping to uh, address and, and and use kind of power and privilege and martial resource to to address the the disproportionate outcomes for Palestinians. And so one of the things that she was bringing up, she's like, you imagine growing up in a space where you've got a narrative. We went to this place called Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in, in it is powerful. It, it is amazing. You, whatever history you've gotten in the Holocaust, it's a very different thing to be in the camps and to see all of the death and debauchery that happened at the result of World War II. That is undeniable. And it is so rooted in the current Israeli context about, you know, somebody tried to exterminate you. And in fact, your own biblical story has huge major empires in an area that you see yourself as indigenous to try to wipe you out. That has to be addressed if we're going to have a... That experience has, is not denied and it wasn't denied by any of the Palestinian folks that we talked to. Everybody acknowledged that, that, that there is a right to exist. Okay. Now, the right to exist in a full, free, perfect space. I mean, many of the Palestinians said, you know, look, regardless of what the conflict has been before, as long as I just have the freedom to pass to the lands that I, cl I can claim 500 to 1,000 years of history in, let's just start there and keep moving. So the uncomplicated piece that I think there was agreement on by both uh, freedom workers and, and activists on the, on the Israeli side and activists on the Palestinian side— is this notion that it's not that, that that piece is not complicated? Everybody has a right to exist. Everybody has a right to exist freely. But what's happening is it's not being acted upon, right? The boundaries exist for the two agreed upon two state solution. The, like those things are real and they're tangible, just as much as it's not complicated to go from Jerusalem, cross that border wall into Bethlehem, which we had the privilege to do because of our American passports in ways our Palestinian guides couldn't even do. They were in in the shout out to Mejdi tours who do this dual narrative kind of Holy Land experience where they have Palestinian and Israelis working together to help, you know, just get the perspectives of these and hold that tension. Um, but there were some of our folks who couldn't come with us that we had built relationship with because they are not allowed, if if they were to cross that border, uh, to Bethlehem and to Palestinian territories, they would never be able to come back to Jerusalem, separating families and things like that. Even though there are Palestinians who do have rights to live in East Jerusalem, 
when we talk about, you know, and so so crossing that border, there's this huge wall with military posts and guns pointed at you. We even had the experience of crossing back across that border and our American passport got us in, except they were hemming up Palestinians who were trying to get there to work. You could try to go to work at 9 a.m. You have to plan to be there at 5 because you don't know who's going to decide to have a bad day and mess with you. When when we had gotten through relatively easily because of our American passports and visas and all the care for us that everybody in Palestinian territories and Israeli territories were given to us, it was very clear. And then all of a sudden we look up and one of the folks who tried to get too close to our group coming through now has a gun trained on them and having to explain why they were there. And why they, you know, why they were trying to walk too close to our group coming through. So, so like the the differences are stark, and 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 eventually we're gonna put out the pictures of all the graffiti art on these walls that are the message of these occupied peoples, saying this is our real experience. You know, the journalist who was killed, and she was shot wearing body armor and a helmet in a shot through the neck that takes a heart and nobody's prosecuted for it. While we were in the Ida camp, there were five people who lost their lives. We're kicking around tear gas. Ida's refugee camp, these are folks who were displaced in the original 1948 war. They're holding, they're, they're refusing to join a Palestinian or Israeli state because they are holding their refugee status for hopes that they will get to return to their lands where they were pushed out of. It is the most tear-gassed area of the entire world. And they haven't done these deep studies of it, but the, there's outcomes uh, for, for the children in that area who are mostly, the, most of the most of them are children who are descendants of the people who were the original refugees in there. And as we're strolling through and looking at this, we are seeing the sniper towers training on us, trying to figure out what's going on. We're seeing kids getting a little too close to the border and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the military response is leaning in as kids are playing soccer in the area and we're kicking tear gas spent tear gas canisters as we're walking through this area, um, which had to be re retrofit. So it's no longer tents. It's now building in kind of more permanent structures because it's been, you know, 70 years. And, and so all of those, that that reality is so stark um, that you can't deny it. It's that's That's not a complicated thing to see, right? It's clear. There's a wall and there's a huge difference in the outcomes of the folks that are involved there, period. And that's acknowledged wholly across the entire uh, area. The complexity comes in the in what you try to do when you try to resolve that because you have the experience of trying to be wiped out in many ways, the bombings in the second intifada when things fell apart, um, and you have some huge terrorist acts that are woven, that are used to weave into um, the wide support of Israel and against uh, Palestinians and much, much of that his, historical narrative. So, so that's the, that's the thing in terms of complicated and complex. It's not complicated to see the reality on the ground. Once you go there, witness, open your eyes real, real with your own eyes. The complex part comes in to how folks have arrived at feeling that they need this type of protection. They need this type of control. Um, if you're a Palestinian, your day gets messed with randomly you could have you could set out to go have a wedding and they decide they're going to let everybody through except for one person. They can't come through until 5 p.m. My host family was talking about they were going to a wedding, their daughter's wedding. Everybody was cleared. Everybody had the preclearance. But when they get to the checkpoint, everybody's allowed in except for the father. Father can't come in until 5 p.m. Then by the time they actually get there at 5 p.m., there's a wait at the border check and they may not get there that night, which means that they can't do the engagement party and because you have to get married in Jerusalem in order to 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 have your wedding be valid. So there's all these little things that are just designed to mess with folks who are considered Palestinian. Even even one of the folks with us, Patrick Miri, when we were leaving the airport, his middle name is Ablan, which is an Arabic middle name. And so I breeze through, first time this has ever happened, folks ain't <laughs> even looking at me with my locks. They're like, oh, you American, you black, okay, you, you, you good. And then they stop him and we almost don't get cleared to leave. So, so those are the some of the things that just popped to mind. Yeah, I had the uh, similar experience at the airport because uh, you know, my middle name is made up, <laughs> and so that's kind of a rare thing for uh, I think a lot of communities around the world to just have kind of a throwaway name. And so uh, my middle name is spelled Iwa Derek, and I noticed like a lot of Arabic names have Eric in the last in the you know in the end. 
And so, of course, they were asking me, you know, like, who's your family and like, what's the origin of your middle name? And can you say it for me? And, and all of these things. And I was like, oh, man, like that's like you don't even say the K in my middle name. It's Iadera. But, you know, <laughs> and so it looked like I was just being super sus um, with my name. And so the, the security at the airport, it, it was interesting because I, I feel like um, I, I don't know, I in coming into Israel, like they didn't even ask me necessarily like why I was there. Like they didn't even look at my passport. They just kind of let me in. And then like on the way out, when they did look at my passport and saw or passport and saw my name, it kind of um, switched. And so I kind of got both ends of the experience. Um, and then of course I had a little magnet in my bag and in Israeli like airport, they open everybody's stuff. Like they go through every single bag and like unpack it in front of you. And I had this little magnet from one of the, um, from the, the border wall that I bought from a kid and they put my suitcase through for at least like 40 minutes, <laughs> unpacked everything and gave me all my stuff back uh, from my suitcases. Like it just in a big pile over that little magnet. And so that was great. Um, I, I think, you know, we had, uh, there were just, there were so many quotable things from a lot of our, um, Palestinian, um, folks who shared, um, one thing that kind of stuck with me was just, uh, the quote that like, we don't live in post-trauma, we live in ongoing trauma. And then all of the conversations around what happens kind of on both sides when you're living in those conditions and they're just continually reinforced and, and nothing is happening about it. And, um, American Palestinians can't use their American passports in Israel, um, which is really, really interesting. And then additionally, I don't know if we've shared this yet, but, um, for refugee folks, like that status is inherited. And so like when you have children as a refugee, your children also don't have a country or, or, or a place that is, um, on their path, uh, on their identification. And so when we got, went to the Ada refugee camp, it was, you know, like Anthony said, it used to be tense, but at a certain point now, it's like it's a whole town um, with a school and a community of people who are, are just trying to like live under these conditions of being the most tear gas place on earth and, and the birth defects and, and impacts on people um, that are happening there. Um, and then just we had a conversation, too, around like what does like for the Israeli community, what does you know, having your, your youth carry around machine guns, like what does that do for you, your humanity? You know, it, it's, yeah, that, that quote was just like, yep. <laughs> you know, again, all these things are, are reinforcing just so much that you, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> and this was, this was very different too. You know, I think that's an important thing to, to, to recognize is that there are Israeli folks. And again, I keep using that term because I'm trying to distance us from, the religio argument, which is being used for the talking points for for folks who are carrying perspectives seen widely by everybody in the Palestinian and Israeli territories as kind of fringe elements. We've gone through this in our own United States, you know, political space. But 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 there's there are Israeli folks who are trying to wrestle with this, right? You you go from something like Yud Vashem, which is this amazing, powerful, deep memorial to the millions of folks who were exterminated you know you know systematically the children the the children's portion of that is 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 extremely amazing it's a dark room with little candles lit with mirrors to represent the over 1 million 1.2 million um uh, Jewish children who were exterminated in this, right? So so that cannot be denied, right? And and this whole wired around that and so you have folks who understand that history and their pride as both Israeli folks and you know Israeli Jews in particular who are trying to wrestle with um having now a setup that doesn't gel with the aspirations of what it means to be somebody who's come from people who have survived that extermination and defiantly so 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 that is now there's a whole lot of folks that we encountered who are wrestling with that from varying degrees. Some who go into activist route, some who are just like, look, I'm just trying to live my life and I'm going to make sure I pass along to my kids, you know, as much of the positive thoughts about this. And there's a hope that, that things will differently change. And then there is an, you know, a, an, an element. And unfortunately that's the element that's in political power right now um, that is trying to put forward 
these things. I mean, some of the very folks in power and government are quoted um, by, by, you know, of saying that I'm going to shoot and maim, you know, Palestinian children so that so that they can't grow up to walk, right? So, so you know, so so there's no leg for them to stand on. Like there's there's these there's all of these things happening at the same time, and folks trying to figure out how to how to live with it some with various clear privileges and others who can't even go to their ancestral homeland or have been forced out of their home. The the only other piece I want to put onto the table here, just as in connection to the thoughts earlier, is when we talk about settlements. So this is something that comes up over and over again when you learn about this con this this this, this conflict. There's both an internal settlement building space of areas that are supposed to be marked for Palestinians. And then you have um, Jewish Israeli folks who are building compounds in those areas um, that are that are supposed to be for Palestinians, but also settlements that are being built in the Palestinian conflict areas. One of the things that's happening right now is as long as we do nothing, those settlements are continuing to grow and they are powered powers routed to them, waters routed to them in Palestinian territories that are supposed to in the previous treaties be Palestinian land. And, and yet these settlements are being built there and then they're being fully supplied. And 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 even Benjamin Netanyahu himself is, is you know, on record of saying he has a, there's a goal for the amount of settlers by 2025, you know. And so while there's this negotiation for, you know, halting settlements and this kind of goodwill, quote unquote, for towards agreement, you have these clear goals um, that are bypassing whole areas. One of the most amazing things to see is when you're driving in Palestinian territories, you can tell the Palestinian territories versus the Jewish settlement territories because the Palestinian territories have to have water tanks on the roof to maintain supplies of water because their water is interrupted or diverted. And uh, but if it's if it's a Jewish settlement or Israeli settlement, excuse me, in the um, in the area, it looks like a gated compound community with all the amenities that it has because the whole government has made sure that your water, power, and all those things are taken care of. So there was very stark to see the difference between the, the these two things, and so that just that that you ask what sticks out that will be burned in my mind forever. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing your experiences. I know we didn't really even get to cover half of what you were able to do because you were there for, what, two weeks? Uh, yeah. Two and a half weeks. Um, um, so we want to thank you for sharing what you could share in our hour together today. Um, as we close out, is there any last thoughts you want to leave our listeners with um, from your trip? Mary, I'll let you go first, but just just... Uh, well, I'll let you go as soon as I, as soon as I say this, but I just want to make mention that this isn't this is just one of many things that's going to come out helping to balance this narrative. And there are NGOs and organizations, both Jewish heritage, uh, um, both that are primarily Jewish folks, that are Palestinian folks, that are working on this issue and to help bring these dual narratives forward. And so I want to just keep in mind for the audience that you know these perspectives are coming from Israeli Jews and 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 Palestinians. Um, all who are working on that, both in Pal in Israel and Palestine, and in the United States, and so I just want to say that there's there'll be there's ongoing work that's happening. I can share too another uh, quote that I have from my notes with one of our Palestinian um, speakers about how you know he encouraged us to to be informed. We need to start being more informed about the by the future rather than strictly by the past, and so like looking towards like what is the actual you know outcome. You know, in that instance between, you know, Israel and Palestine, but it also made me think a lot about in the U.S. too and how, um, yeah, what do, what do we want to? <laughs> and thinking in terms of, um, you know, we have this settler settler history, this, this nation that was based on, you know, the early stories of like religious persecution of Europeans who came here and felt that this was their place too. And we're still living the impacts of that in, in indigenous communities and in communities of color. Um, and so I, I think my note for people in the, in the group, as well as for just, you know, here back home is to reflect on and what that means and what the, the context of this place means for us as individuals and how we're, we're moving forward and, um, reconciling and acknowledging the history that exists here. Um, it's not just Israel and Palestine. It's it's a story that's common all over. <laughs> and and nobody's done a great job of addressing any anything in, in our country's past. So 
you know, for the clergy that were involved, um, you know, we didn't even get to touch on the fact that we get to go to Galilee where this whole Christian story began. And you see how small it is. It's a lake that's smaller than Lake yeah. Minnetonka. <laughs> and yet it's surrounded by all these different hist- areas where this story in this in the in the in the work of Christ comes out. And I got to actually preach on the on the Sea of Galilee. Like so that was a huge mm. thing. So there was also mm-hmm. that piece of it where folks were kind of doing their pilgrimage to Holy Land. But I think what's telling about that is that area includes Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, um, in those teachings. And one of the things that I thought wildly fascinating throughout this whole experience is how much Palestinian um, Jewish uh, and, and Israeli Christians are not talked about in this. And so there's this interesting marriage and support, um, unapologetic support of a Jewish state um, and very little talk from the same kind of evangelical Christian arm about the plight of the Palestinian Christians who were the people who were there. They're like, they're the indigenous Christians. <laughs> like They're the first groups um, there. And we don't hear a whole lot of conversation talking about that. And so um, I think, I think what, what, um, what we can learn from this also is at play and we'll be able to continue to have those conversations. We'll be hosting, I know Gloria Day and the area churches of Duluth are going to be hosting conversations, um, kind of helping to bring this narrative forward and, and to set some context for it. Churches for Middle East Peace is continuing to do work. There are many other NGOs that are connected to it. A lot of these NGOs are led by folks of Jewish heritage, folks of Palestinian heritage, folks of Arab heritage, um, and and all dealing with the fact that right now, if you're a Lebanese, for example, and who is a huge Christian population, um, where where the whole um, Lebanese Maronite Church, one of the early Orthodox Church uh, spaces that started even before the Catholic Church, um, they cannot go to Israel to Jerusalem. I, I remember handing one of the families who we were working with and talking to, who was helping us go around. I handed them one of the crosses that I got olive wood from Jerusalem. And the tears that came forward because pilgrimage to the Holy Land is a sacred thing and they can never go, never go as long as they have a Lebanese passport. I mean, and, and, and so I just think that's some of the things that gets lost in here is that prior to this conflict, everybody was right to go to these sacred spaces was protected. That is no longer the case. And so, I, you know, I just, I, I want to put forward that is, as we get all these perspectives in there, you know, one of the things that we have lost in this conflict and our inability to tell this full narrative is that there are whole swaths of people around the world who aren't allowed to go back into their sacred space. And that, again, brings me right back to the indigenous experiences here in, in the Americas. Um, and at least in this case, some of those sacred spaces haven't been bulldozed over and built settlements upon. Mm-hmm. Wow, sounds like a really powerful trip. Thank you guys for joining us, especially so soon after getting back. Anthony, I know you just got back last night. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm Haley Lee, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Cindy Morales-Garcia, co-founder of the Courageous Change Collective. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's group. And our guest? I'm Mary Villiard, visual artist based in Duluth. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>